Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's September 21st. I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis, and joining me via phone is Todd Campbell, one of The Motley Fool's premier healthcare writers. Todd, how are you today? Hi, Christine. I'm excited to talk today about a lot of interesting things. Me too. Today's show is a tale of two cities, or rather a tale of two stocks, which met very different fates in the past week. One of them, Novavax, lost 84% of its market cap last Friday, and the other, Sarepta Therapeutics, gained 74% on Monday. Let's start with Novavax. Novavax is uh, was an intrigue. It's still an intriguing company, but I mean, it's much less intriguing after they reported phase three data from a study that was evaluating a vaccine targeting something called RSV, a very common viral infection that can be dangerous in elderly patients and very young patients. So, patients that have, uh, you could argue, are immunocompromised. Right. So, RSV is actually the second leading cause of death in children under one year old. Uh, it affects about four to five million children just in the U.S. alone. Uh, there are about 2.4 million adults over 65 that are affected. And Novavax was looking to make a vaccine for this very, very common virus, which you would think if it's that prevalent, it's probably going to make a lot of money. And so, people were very, very excited about Novavax and ultimately pretty disappointed. As we mentioned, they were down 84% when it was reported that pretty much the vaccine does not work. Yeah, I mean, investors were very hopeful. Um, you know, it, it, developing vaccines is hard. It's expensive. It involves trials that include thousands of patients and multiple years. Um, and, you know, so people had really you know, a lot at stake for this company. And they had bid the, the market cap in this company up into the multiple billions of dollars because the 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 view basically that, okay, we're they're doing a study uh, that theoretically would allow for a vaccination in every elderly person over the age of, say, 70. You know, there's 76 million baby boomers out there. You know, Vivax was estimating that uh, if the study had had panned out, um, its vaccine could be used in up to 100 million seniors per year. I mean, that's that's an astounding figure. They were throwing around numbers as high as six billion per year in peak annual sales. So the the fact that <clears throat> this trial failed um, obviously was a, was a devastating blow to the company. I think it's also a pretty good reminder about the statistics that happen uh, in the background behind these studies. So, if you look at their initial smaller trial, it was 1,600 people, and half of them got the vaccine, half got a placebo, and the results were just barely statistically significant. So, they reported that there is a p-value of 0.041, and what that means is that there is a 4.1% chance that the difference between the two groups of patients occurred just by chance, and there's not actually something meaningful going on with the vaccine. And so, it turns out that that was the case. When you get to the bigger trial, you have pretty much even results between people who showed signs of infection who had been taking the vaccine and those who just got the placebo. And so, it's a good reminder for investors that when you see studies that are just barely passing the mark of statistical significance, that's a little bit of a reason to be nervous. Right. It's also a good reminder to investors to to look at it. I mean, 
Last August, this company's management came out and said, hey, look, look what we've done in phase two, you know, the 1,600-person study. You know, we, we've, we've successfully met our endpoint. And without doing the, the due diligence and digging a little deeper, like you're suggesting, people would have taken that at face value. We're thinking, okay, great. You expand this out to more patients, and we prove that, that, that this thing works in more patients. And it's a no-brainer. Get this thing on the market, and let's make some money. Um, yeah, you need, to, you need to be take smaller phase one and phase two trial results with a very big grain of salt, recognizing that phase three trials still have a very high failure rate. I think that I've seen in the past uh, studies showing that failure rates in phase three can run from 30 to 40 percent. Um, so that's that's a significant failure rate. So you've, you've succeeded in phase one, you've succeeded in phase two. That does not guarantee you will succeed in phase three. Exactly. So now Novavax, looking forward, they are trying the vaccine in healthy pregnant women to prevent the virus in the infants that are then born. They also have a flu vaccine and an Ebola vaccine that are both very early stage. There's really not much left with this stock. Well, um, yeah, Christine, the, the thing that the value potentially in this stock now, <clears throat> in my view, is that study that's being done in pregnant women, um, but I think the completion date on clinicaltrials.gov for that trial is something like 2020. So, you know, it, it, theoretically, I don't know if we get interim results before then, but theoretically, we're talking a while before we know whether or not this, this vaccine can be saved, if you will, and still have an application that's worthwhile. Even though the stock is trading at only a, a buck something per share, investors have to realize that it still has a $444 million market cap. So this is, this is not a company that is valued you know, at $50 million or something. It's still carrying a $444 million market cap uh, and, and doesn't have a drug that's likely to make it onto market now for a couple, couple few more years. Yeah, neither of us is trying to catch this falling knife. So before we move on to the tale of Sarepta Therapeutics, I mentioned a few months ago some options resources that The Fool has available, and a bunch of you wrote in saying that you were interested. So I figured I should mention that The Fool just released our Ultimate Income Report, which is written by one of the lead advisors for our options newsletter service. And so the report itself is totally free. So if you're interested in learning about some of our best option strategies, shoot me an email at industryfocus@fool.com, and I can send you some more information about how to get that report. So if Novavax investors were going through the worst of times, then Sarepta investors went through the best of times earlier this week. Listeners will remember this company name from our May 4th episode, I believe it was. This is uh, the company that was developing a treatment for a rare but devastating disease known as Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD. And on Monday, we found out that they got approval from the FDA for their drug, which was known as Ateplersen, and will now go by the trade name Exondus 51. What an amazing and intriguing story for investors and for those who are uh, who like soap opera backstories. I mean, there there was so much involved in the review of this drug at, leading up to the application uh, that you almost have to look at and say, "There's two stories here. There's the story of wow, this is the first FDA-approved drug that actually targets the cause of DMD." Uh, and then there's a second story, which is, you know, was the F does, does the FDA did they push the bar too uh, 
uh, stretch the bar too far or whatever, lower the bar too low in approving this drug. Right. So the story involves a pretty heated internal conflict in the FDA where you had some people in the agency really pushing for approval of this drug, saying, look at the stories that the patients that are taking it can tell. Look how amazing this is that this drug must be working. And then you had people on the other side saying, wait a second, that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to to be pulled by emotions. We're here to look at the clinical evidence, which was admittedly a little bit lacking. Right. Do you, do, how much do you weight the science uh, at the FDA versus the unmet need of DMD patients? I think that was a, a core, core debate within the agency. And on the one hand, in support of this drug, you had the head of drug evaluation, Janet, Dr. Janet Woodcock, and on the other side, you had the head of the group within uh, the FDA that was tasked with reviewing the data on this drug. And that director of that group was uh, a, a Dr. Unger. And the two, Woodcock and Unger, had very different views on the subject of the science uh, versus the unmet need issue. Exactly. So what they were really disagreeing about was whether an increase in this protein known as dystrophin, which was a surrogate endpoint in the trial, whether that necessarily implied clinical benefit. So Dr. Woodcock said, yes, it does. If we can show that they have increased levels of dystrophin, then there is a very, very good chance that they will then have the patients will have a clinical benefit. Whereas Dr. Unger worried about this a little bit. And aside from the, the worry over the data not being there, he also worried about whether approving this drug just based on this limited data set would be a bad signal. It would send the message that the FDA can be pressured by things like politics and intimidation as opposed to strict science. Yeah. I, let's go back in time for a second, because I think maybe we should spend a little time talking about DMD um, and what dystrophin is. <clears throat> DMD is a muscle-wasting disease. Okay, So what ends up happening is in patients that can't produce adequate levels of functional dystrophin, which is a protein used to uh, produce and maintain muscle fiber, uh, over time their muscles weaken and they lose the ability to walk by the time they reach their teens, and sadly, um, they lose heart muscle function typically once they get into their 20s. Uh, and unfortunately, they tend to succumb to their disease uh, sometime between their third and fourth decade. So this is an extremely uh, progressive, life-shortening disease. And up until now, there has been nothing other than corticosteroids um, that have been approved by the FDA to try and offer some hope to this patient population. And I think because of that, and because of the history just with muscular dystrophy, fundraising and awareness, uh, th there was advocacy for the approval of this drug on a level that is unprecedented. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. You've, you've had um, the FDA, people within the FDA saying that they were you know, receiving communications from Congress, uh, letters and communications from uh, patient advocates, from patients, from other interested parties, and that sometimes those letters weren't so nice. 
Right, exactly. I mean, there was a, an advisory committee meeting. Um, how these approvals work with the FDA is that first you have an advisory committee that convenes and they review the evidence and they make a recommendation for or against approval. And when the team was considering the evidence, they heard testimonial from patients. I think it was actually one of the longest ever patient testimonial periods where these these young boys that are suffering from this disease and their parents and their caregivers were essentially pleading with the, the people from the FDA please approve this drug. There's there's no other option for these boys. And as rare as the disease is, when you're looking it in the face, that that pulls at you. I, I can understand that. Yeah. And, you know, Unger, uh, basically, so investors and everybody who's interested knows what ended up happening is that, you know, Woodcock has had wanted to approve the drug all along. Uh, Unger and some of the other people on the review committee were not convinced that the drug provided enough of a boost in dystrophin produ- production to, to determine that it, could, it would produce a clinical benefit. Um, eventually, they went to an appeals board. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the story is that in May, uh, the FDA was supposed to issue out its final determination, go or no go. The advisory committee meeting, after hearing all of that testimony, still concluded on a seven to six vote not to recommend early approval. Yet walking out of that meeting, Woodcock, within uh, days, was already saying, I'm going to approve this drug. So, you know, Unger went to an appeals board. Um, The appeals process went through and looked at the science, evaluated the stories from both ends, uh, and then eventually submitted a, uh, a memo on this entire subject to the commissioner of the Food and Drug um, uh, uh, administration. So this went all the way up to the top, and you know, throughout the entire process, uh, Unger maintains, and Woodcock doesn't dispute the fact that she was involved very, uh, very heavily, right from the right from the get-go, and that that process included um, various meetings with patient patients and, and advocates uh, during a period of time where the committee was reviewing the science. So all along. There was this push and this pull between, you know, the science and, you know, the, the, the very big unmet need. And I think that what Woodcock was arguing was, you know, listen, we can't just operate only on the science because, A, we don't, there's, there's nothing that, that can be done to help these patients and prolong their lives as it stands today. Um, and, and, you know, so if we have something that even offers the minimal chance of offering a benefit that's safe, and in trials, that was the one thing that everybody agreed on: this, this drug was safe. Um, that we should, you know, we should approve it. Uh, and and I think that others at the agency took a different view, one worrying that, you know, if they approved a drug that wasn't scientifically proven to have the clinical benefit, what would that open? You know, what kind of recommendations would they have to give in the future? Exactly. It definitely did show that the FDA has more flexibility than maybe we would have thought. One thing that Woodcock had mentioned that I definitely can't get behind, apparently she was talking about Sarepta's need for capitalization, and she noted their stock price as it reacted to different FDA actions. That, I, I my own opinion here, but I would say definitively should not be considered when you look at something like this. I mean, she's right. If Sarepta didn't get approval, they probably would have run out of money and wouldn't be able to de- deliver this drug. 
But that can't be considered. And indeed, an FDA spokeswoman did say that the FDA didn't consider those factors in their final decision. But I I think that does kind of highlight that Woodcock was willing to go to to some unprecedented levels to push. Yeah, Christine, I I think, you know, I believe that those comments were actually made during the review board um, hearings. Um, I don't think it was those comments were made. Um, during the, the the evaluation of the science behind this drug, um, you know, that I think the point was that that Woodcock was trying to make, in fairness, was that you know we have to recognize that Sarepta is working on all sorts of other medicines that could treat these diseases that could work better, and if if they were to go out of business, what would that mean for that science? It could and end that 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 science um, and basically prohibit the development of a, of a second generation drug that conceivably works better. You know, I, I think if you go, if we just look at it from, okay, what could have gone differently? I mean, obviously the drug could have worked better, right? I mean, if it was a slam dunk approval, this none of this would have happened. But the reality is that, you know, you had a 12 person trial uh, that had all sorts of gaps in it as far as you know, the validity of the trial results. Um, for example, there was no control Wood- group. Yeah, both Woodcock and Unger basically looked at it and said, yeah, we, we don't know what we can trust out of this data. That's why you know, they, this past summer they requested additional information from Sarepta uh, interim analysis of another trial that's going on right now and took a look at another 12 boys uh, trying to determine just how much dystrophin is being produced uh, by taking this drug. And, you know, they determined that after doing their own analysis that it was a 0.3% improvement in dystrophin production. I mean, by any measures, that's tiny. And I think that the argument uh, from Woodcock was, yeah, but it's an improvement, right? And the argument from Unger was, yeah, but we don't know without a shadow of a doubt that that level of improvement would result in the clinical benefit. Exactly. So, technically, what happened here was an accelerated approval. And so, what that means is that Sarepta is not off the hook quite yet. They did get their their green light, but they'll still have to provide more proof of efficacy as it becomes available, which I would say that's a pretty good middle ground. You know, they're not they're not getting a go ahead with no strings attached, but yet this drug will become available, which is really, really important. Yeah, I mean, this is a very, very small treatment population, right? We're talking about uh, one in 3,500 male births. And I did the math on that. DMD, therefore, you know, is occurring about 580 times new patients diagnosed per year. And of that, this drug only works in about 13% of them. So every year, we're talking about 60 or so kids uh, that this drug might might be able to benefit. Um, it's great that they're they're obviously going to continue the research and the study. But as we just talked about <clears throat> previously, uh, once you open these studies up to more and more patients, it does not necessarily mean that you're going to get the outcome that you want. Exactly. So definitely still a case to watch going forward. And interestingly, Sarepta's other drugs um, could potentially work on a much broader. Uh, portion of the DMD population, we're talking about up to 80% of these patients. So hopefully for the sake of the patients and their families, Sarepta can continue to prove that their drugs do work and validate their entire platform. So I want to wrap up today's episode with a Tale of Two Cities quote, and it is the one that you're thinking of, but you might be surprised to learn the lines that come right after it. 
from Dickens. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>